Hey, hey, welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Tom Morcus, and today I sit down with Nathan Hirsch, the founder of FreeUp, a leading marketplace for pre-vetted virtual assistants in e-commerce and digital marketing, a company which he acquired for $5,000, grew to $5 million per year in sales, and which he recently sold. And in today's interview, we go behind the scenes of what that process was like. What was the spark behind purchasing or acquiring FreeUp? What did he invest in to grow it? how he then positioned it to sell. And he did this in about four years. And so it's a pretty remarkable effort. And I guess there's a lot of things you can extract from this. And we touch on a lot of different subjects. But one thing that resonated with me throughout was listening to how Nathan was effectively always finding some new source of leads, of traffic, of whatever it was he was doing. He was really focused on it and he made it happen. He'd find these opportunities and he'd exploit them and they compounded over time. It's the same experience I've had in my own businesses. It's the same experience I hear from a lot of the people I interview on this podcast and from my friends who have had and built very successful businesses that they've either continued to maintain or sold. And so just this idea of constant growth, constant iteration, constant improvement, and not being slowed down by things like, oh, at the start, it was a manual process. In fact, the, almost the entire process was manual from how he would, from the client side, the user side, to the uh, freelancer side. So because FreeUp is a marketplace, you can imagine how painful a manual process there would be. But that's how he started and he bootstrapped it and then started to invest in the software piece of it and was able to then sell it in about a four-year time span. The other thing that I think is kind of remarkable is just when you focus on the customer experience, all the other things start to fall in place around your business. Like the things that should be updated, the things they should focus on, where they should put their effort. If you make the users and the customers happy, then you're going to build a business that eventually somebody wants. So lots of things to take away from today's conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you do, make sure to remember, leave a review. Go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes. That's T-O-M-M-O-R-K-E-S dot com slash iTunes, and that'll take you right to iTunes to leave a review. Or if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, pause, stop what you're doing, leave a five-star review right now. Pull the car over, pause, leave a review. Okay, maybe not that, but wait till you're parked and then go ahead and leave a review. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your guys' support and helping to spread the word. It really means a lot. All right, without further ado, let's get to today's conversation. So Nathan, the place I want to start with is a little bit of your backstory. I want to get into the sale of free up and how you kind of organize that. But before that was even a thing, before that happened, uh, there was obviously a spark that led to the acquisition of this, uh, your investment and growth in it to build it. So take us back to about there, or maybe even before, like what led you into entrepreneurship and then getting into free up in the first place. Yeah, and, and thanks for having me on. So going back even before free up, I mean, growing up, my parents were both teachers, and I grew up with the mentality that I was going to go to school, get a real job, work for thirty years, and retire, and Ended up, I did go to college. I went to Quinnipiac University, and it was there that I, I really had some jobs, like summer jobs, going into college. And I had already kind of figured out I hated having a boss. And the business, the question became like, can I start a business before I graduate? Because if I was going to graduate with a degree, I was probably going to go out and get a real job. And I kind of looked at college as a ticking clock. I had four years to to figure out if I could be an entrepreneur. So I started off buying and selling people's textbooks competing with my school bookstore who was ripping people off. And I, I, I gave people higher prices. I would sell them to online distributors. I uh, came across Amazon doing that. And 
one day I, I got a cease and desist letter from my college telling me to, to knock it off because uh, I was competing with their bookstore. And I freaked out a little bit. I, I didn't want to get kicked out of college. My parents were teachers, so that wouldn't have gone over too well. And so I pivoted pretty hard. And I had sold some of these books on Amazon. And, and I thought it was cool that I could have this 24-7 storefront and ship products and get direct deposits. I, all this was pretty new. It was 2008, 2009. So I started doing a lot of experimenting with all sorts of different products, stuff I was familiar with, like sporting equipment, video games, computers. And I just failed over and over. And it wasn't until I branched really out of my comfort zone and found the baby product industry that sales started to take off and I started to make real money. And before I knew it, I was selling hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of dollars of baby products out of my college dorm room, um, drop shipping them from different US manufacturers. And as I was growing this business, I became quickly overwhelmed. I was working 20 hours a day. My um, I was balancing being in a fraternity and schoolwork and friends and everything that kind of went along with being in college. And I realized I had to start hiring people. So I started hiring college kids, which was a disaster on, on a lot of fronts. They were very unreliable and, and didn't do a lot to, to help my business. Besides my one really good hire, who was one of my first hires named Connor. And he's actually been my business partner for, for 10 plus years. But we, we learned a valuable lesson together about not hiring college kids for important roles in your company. And based on a necessity, we couldn't really get adults to work for us as 20-year-old Amazon sellers. So we went into the remote hiring world, the Upworks, the Fibers. And we hired some really good VAs to start, but we hated the process. We hated posting a job, getting 100 applicants, interviewing them one by one. It took forever. It did help us create our own hiring process, which we've kind of applied to all our businesses going forward. But we wanted something better and faster. And we kept looking, we kept looking. And when we couldn't find it, we said, you know what, we'll build it ourselves. And that's when the idea of FreeUp came about. We really built the marketplace that we wish we had from the client side, from the hiring side, a platform that already pre-vetted VAs, freelancers before they even got on the platform, that me as a client could put in a request and get someone matched up same day and just get started right away, knowing this person was already vetted. Great 24-7 support on the back end in case anything went wrong. If the freelancer or the VA didn't show up or missed a deadline, I could go right to the, to the marketplace. And on the back end, no turnover protection. If someone quits covering replacement costs and, and getting that, a new person right away because turnover just kills businesses. So that was a concept. And we launched it. We launched it to Amazon sellers. We were fortunate enough that, that people really liked it. Um, we had taken $5,000 and built this really crummy software. <laughs> Um, that did very little. The freelancers could log in and the clients could log in and see their freelancers. And, and that was it. Everything else was manual. People would have to email me requests and Skype me and call me. And, and so over time, we started to invest more and more in the software. And I'll kind of take a break here and let you jump in before I keep going. But that's how I, I eventually got to, to free up. Yeah. Well, I, I, let's roll into that because I'm, I, well, I'm, I'm just uh, paying attention here. So I want to kind of... I want to hear about that transition from doing things more manually to then trying to automate and scale the process. Like, Give me an idea then. You started manually. Then you were saying, well, I want to invest in the software side to scale this thing up a little bit. What were some of... Maybe that's a good good pause here. What were some of the indicators for you that like, yeah, this is, this is good. Like, We have enough traction here. We're investing in things like software and tech becomes worthwhile. Yeah. And I wouldn't say this is a regret because it, it all ended up working out. I mean, if there was one thing I could do differently and, and hindsight's always 20, 20, it would be to kind of look at ourselves as a software company earlier. I mean, 
I had never run a software company. Connor never run a software company. At the beginning, for whatever reason, we were like, all right, we're a marketplace for freelancers. We'll match people up and have great support. And people love the VAs. They love the freelancers. They loved our support. They are protection. Um, hopefully, people people like working with me, but they hated our software. And that was just the constant feedback we got from everyone, clients, freelancers. And it probably took us a, a good year, year and a half before we were like, all right, we're a software company. We need to start acting like a software company. We need to hire developers. We need to have quality assurance people. We need to use Jira to manage the devs. We need to have sprints and, and, and testing and everything that goes along with that. And I wish we had done that a lot earlier because once we started investing in the software, I feel like that's when it really came together. That's when people started taking us seriously. And I mean, it was tough because we're getting all this feedback, right? There, there's two part, There's three parts of it. There's the freelancer side, there's the client side, and then there's the admin side with reports and data and stuff we need to run the business. And you're constantly getting all this feedback from clients, from freelancers, from our internal team saying, hey, we need X, Y, Z. And, and you end up with hundreds of pages of upgrades you need for your software. And then it comes down to prioritizing. What has the potential for ROI? Or are you doing more on the client side, on the freelancer side, or the admin side? Are you doing long projects where everyone commits to that? Are you doing lots of short projects and chipping away, but pushing the longer things out for, for later? So I think that was always a balancing act. And I think the, the new owners are, are going to invest in that on a high level. I mean, I told them when they were buying FreeUp that even though by the time we had sold FreeUp three years later, we had invested a lot in our software and it came a long way. And it probably went from a, an F or a D to a, a B, a B plus. There was a lot of potential there to, to make it even better. But my mindset from the beginning was, listen, we can't compete with Upwork on marketing. We can't compete with Upwork on software. We can compete with them on great VAs and customer service. So that was always my focus. And then when, when once we started looking at ourselves as a software company, I feel like that's when it all came together. When you say look at yourself like a software company, what were the besides you know you could say the things you, you mentioned which are are good, but somebody might just think, oh yeah, it's like a higher developer. Um, but, but it's probably more than that. There's there's a, probably a lot beneath the surface of what you're saying there. What were some of the things that changed for you guys when you started looking at yourself that way, and what were the things you started organizing differently? Yeah. So let's say I wanted to really focus on customer service in my business. I, I can hire customer service reps, but that's just one part of it. You need good customer service systems. You need canned responses. You need meetings every week to keep them on track. And developers are no different. And it's even more extreme because not only do you need developers, but you need the quality assurance people to check their work. And you need good systems and processes because someone, a developer will always say, hey, it'll take two weeks and that ends up being four, which ends up being six. And, and you also have to map everything out. The the communication between working with a, a business-minded person and, and a development-minded person is very, very different. And there's a lot of assumptions that business owners make that the developers won't. And you really have to try to close that communication gap while being realistic with your expectations, keeping everything in line. And then there's that prioritization where you need a, a good system with all this feedback to organize and say, hey, this project is coming next. And I will say that I'm fortunate enough that um, after a while, my business partner and I are very good at dividing it and conquering and splitting up the business to our strengths. And he took over the dev team. So he was responsible for that, which was probably one of our, our better decisions because he, he works a lot better with um, developers than I do. But it's all about systems and processes and, and communication and figuring out how to get the most out of people while continuing to run forward and how much you're actually going to invest in software. Because we could put in a million dollars into software and still have 10 million more to go. There's no real end in sight. You're constantly making these updates. So yeah, so specifically on that, where did you decide um, this is where we put our effort for on the software side of things? 
we have this one developer, uh, Russell, who is actually part of our new venture outsource school too, but he started off part-time. He was working at Disney and he was doing this on the side. And so we moved him to full-time and then we um, hired two other full-time developers that were in India to work with him. And then we hired a quality assurance person from the Philippines for 40 hours a week to just constantly be checking the software. And then we put Connor in charge of that team. So um, that, all that didn't happen overnight, but that was the, the eventual development of it. So effectively finding kind of like a CTO or, and cause you got, you, you're, you're, are you, te- you're kind of a non-technical founder, co-founder for lack of a better way to describe you. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. In terms of coding and, and yeah. write it like node, which is what our software mm-hmm. is built in. That's not my forte. Did you have a partner on with FreeUp? You said, did you mention that? I think. Yeah. Connor. And he's not Connor. a developer either, right. but I think he, he did a, enough research and enough talking with Russell um, to to learn it, not to do the coding, but to understand it and to make business decisions based on it. So, okay. So that, and so then really what was, at least for you guys, because there, there are no, I know people like this who have a similar kind of setup or or the person who's listening might not be the, the technical side of the team or might not have any technical side of the team, but knows maybe there's something there worth investing in and in, in doing, but how complex and intimidating it could be if you're not a software person and you haven't worked with developers before. Sounds like one critical thing is maybe starting small, um, starting with one person or one developer and working with them to see if you can kind of build that trust. Because it sounds like under under underneath that or underlying that was as you kind of did it over time, that was what was established. Trust that this guy could do the job, he could do it well, you could rely on him to, you know, to some degree or maybe to a great degree, and then expand it that way. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of reflections too. I mean, you have three developers and sometimes they're all working on and different projects, sometimes two of them or even all three of them are working together and you finish a push, let's say you push this update and then you reflect with them. Hey, this went really well. This went poorly. We didn't communicate on this. We had to redo this. So this is what made the deadline go forward. This is the changes that we're going to make. So I think after going through these different updates, three different people who all work a little bit differently, trying to get them to work better together while also figuring out what systems and processes we can put in place to communicate better upfront or run meetings more effectively to make sure that we're actually hitting these deadlines and continuing to move forward. Yeah. And this is now this decision on the on the move to software was it was it all I mean it's also a financial decision. It's also an economic decision. There's more value in a company that's kind of more of a software company, right? But I, I it sounds like that did that play a part and then maybe we can kind of move toward what you guys did. Obviously this was one of the investments you made to get it, we'll say sales ready. Yeah. But I'm sure there's a lot that went into it. But maybe giving me kind of your overview and thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we Connor and I run very lean businesses. We've started three businesses now with less than $5,000. And I mean, the day-to-day operations are free up. There was no office. There's no US employees. It was all VAs in the Philippines doing um, customer service and billing and, and everything that goes with that. So hiring developers, you're not getting them at five bucks an hour. We're, we're, they're, they're the most expensive parts of the team. So Part of it was figuring out, hey, do we hire five developers? Do we hire one or two? And and we, we kind of settled in that three and, and got them to work really well together, plus the QA person who was relatively inexpensive. So figuring out the the exact amount that we wanted to reinvest there because I mean hiring developers and getting them onboarded and, and getting them integrated in the system is is hard. It, it takes a while. And the last thing you want to do is hire five developers and then realize you can only afford four of them and that's time wasted, or vice versa implement, let's say I implement three of them. And then I realize crap, I should have had five of them. And then it takes you another 60 days to get the other two going. And who knows if the other two even work out. So you really want to make those decisions right the first time if possible. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I was wondering about kind of if somebody's not technically say like as savvy, um, 
what what their process would be for something like this because it's like how do you know who's who's going to be you know a, a, a great developer going through that process? I know it's such a big thing we can't go into it here, but it sounds like you know in terms of little like rules of thumb that I can take away from this, it's like at least some aspect of that was by starting a little bit small and then having somebody that you can kind of be the lead on that uh, for advice. So you can kind of grow into it. You don't have to jump into a, a bunch of developers at once. So you guys made that made a, a strategic decision to do just that. But somebody could hypothetically start with something smaller. Yeah, the tips that I would leave people with are do enough research so you understand that the pros and cons of different languages. There's lots of different coding languages. We picked Node, which for a lot of reasons that I'm not technically savvy enough mm-hmm. to explain very well on a podcast. But um, we, we picked the language and then we found one person, Russell. We started in part-time and we built a, a lot of trust with him and had him learn as much of the business as possible. And once we built trust and saw that he could do it, only then can we build the team. Because if you don't know anything about dev and then you hire three developers from the start and they're all telling you different things, you don't know who's right and who's wrong. So right. you need that one point person who you're like, hey, what this person says goes and, and you build that trust with them. I love it. Okay. So and how long, just uh, also scope of time, what was the, the founding and then the sale of uh, Free Up? How long were you working on this, this project? Uh, four years. This business. I won't call it a project, but I mean, I, I call everything projects, but um, <laughs> that's awesome. So four years, you were able to go from basically a $5,000 investment to then sell it. You guys obviously really heavily invest in the software side of things. What else was kind of like critical to get it sales ready or to, to make it something that somebody would want to buy? And then maybe we can kind of dive into that topic. Yeah, yeah. So we, to put it in perspective, we grew from five thousand. We did a million in the first year, five million in nine and third, and twelve million in the fourth. And we grew it very organically. We we spent almost no money on ads. And when people are buying a company, they want to see what the upside of it is. So the upside, I mentioned the software. There are still uh, improvements there, but we we didn't spend any money on ads. So anything, everything that they done ads would just complement it on the organic side. And we had a, a very good. Where we had an affiliate program. One of the better decisions we ever made was from day one, if anyone you refer to free app, you get 50 cents for every hour we build to them forever. And love that program. By year four, we were paying out a quarter million dollars a year in affiliate money, which is a lot of 50 cents. And um, yeah, from there, we would not only have it on our site and make it very clean, but we would tell every single person about it. So if I was on the phone call with the client, last thing I would always say is, hey, by the way, we have this affiliate program. When I trained VAs to eventually take phone calls, they had to remind every client at the end of every phone call about it. Same with partners. So affiliate is the baseline. The second thing I did is network with three new entrepreneurs every single day. I do that to this day, not selling them, not picking them, just getting to know them. And that leads to a lot of great relationships. And you look back four years later, four years in the future... Your, your network has just grown exponentially. And a lot of people know about your business. They know what you do. Off of that, going on podcasts like this one was big. I've been on 300 plus podcasts. It's good to get in front of thousands of people. It's good to, to build relationships with hosts. You and I were talking before this. Um, it's good for backlinks. It's good for SEO. It leads to clients, referrals, other partners. So that was a part of our organic plan. Putting out content, which anyone who follows me on, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram know that I put out content every day, very consistently, um, very scheduled, very planned out. Off of that, looking for content partners. So this is really one of the biggest keys is look for people in your space that have the same customer base, but don't offer the same thing as you. So we started off going after Amazon sellers. So we went after Amazon software companies. We said, hey, 
You don't sell VA services. We don't sell Amazon software. Let's do content swaps. Every six months, we'll organize it on our end. We'll reach out to you. You write a guest blog post for us, vice versa. You blast us to your list. We'll blast you to our list. We'll get to do a YouTube podcast together, whatever it is. And everything I'm mentioning kind of goes together. The the networking could lead to affiliates. The, the networking could lead to podcasts. The podcast could lead to, to partnerships. And they all go hand in hand. And the last thing is micro-influencers. So um, reaching out to people that have groups, uh, coaches that have students, have a following, whatever it is, and, and getting them to promote your products and showing them that you're going to take really good care of their customers and their clients and that you can add value in some way. So throughout the four years, we really um, built out tons of backlinks, tons of people that were promoting us without having us have to run ads, promoting us very consistently. And and you might, a lot of people are probably thinking, okay, that's great, but that may, makes you the, the face of the company. And then what happens if you sell it? But, and the only thing I heard for four years was like, why are you making yourself the face of free up? You're never going to be able to sell this thing. And my counter argument to that, which ended up being right, was as the face of the company, I'm very replaceable. I mean, someone can always come in with a bigger marketing budget, a different lead generation strategy, put someone else in as a face. Like All that can be done with more money and a better plan, better than I can do it. The key is all the systems of the business, all the day-to-day operations, the customer service, the billing, the freelancer matching, every single part of that was systemized that ran with great SOPs and great VAs that ran without me. So I, I know that's what the buyers looked at when they were and going through the sale, and we can talk about that more later. Um, but going, making sure that everything had a system, everything that had a process that was followed, so they can come in and replace Connor and I with four, five, six people that, that marketed at a much higher level than we ever could. But the, all the stuff we did organically is still there. They still have the partners. They still have the backlinks. They still have all that content. Yeah. So this is this is kind of I think super interesting to get into as well. And and I think a lot of the comments you made, I don't think we need to go dive deep into them because I think I've covered them on other episodes and we've gone in depth on these kind of things like the lead generation, the affiliate strategies, the networking. So like all make a lot of sense to me. What I'd love to zoom in on is is uh, specifically on this, like where where was it that you ha- you found, I don't know, maybe this was like during the process of selling or leading up to it, or maybe when you guys were like thinking about, hey, maybe now's the time, right? Because I mean, four, four, four years isn't a long time. But uh, so you had to kind of move fast to to do that. So, but where maybe you were taking a look at it and saying, okay, we need to increase margins here. We need to we need to optimize this. Or you mentioned SOPs, systems, processes. Like, what were the big things that you had to invest in or put your concentration on to kind of like say smooth out for for the sale? What were some of the things that came to mind? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's tons, but two things that I'll go into that are very important. We we set up very good feedback loops early on, both for the clients and the freelancers, because we knew that just like the clients can go to Upwork and Fiverr and lots of other places, the freelancers have lots of different places that they can um, offer their services too. So we need to create a marketplace that they liked, and we need to show them that we listen to their feedback. So making sure that we're not only listening to their feedback, but making improvements based on, off the feedback not just waking up one day and, and thinking that we know what people want, actually listening to them and hearing what they want. And then the second thing is, not only did we start creating SOPs early, but we gave ownership of those SOPs to the virtual assistant. So we had team leaders and assistant team leaders, and they were in charge of the SOPs for their team. And they were in charge of keeping them up to date. And just like every other startup, our processes were constantly changing, constantly evolving, whether it's ideas or feedback or just gradual improvements. And because they kept those SOPs up to date. I mean, we had 35 VAs. We had seven or eight teams 
Connor and I didn't want to keep track of every SOP and, and figure out how to keep them all updated at all times. That's a little bit crazy. So by giving them ownership of those SOPs, when we finally went to sell and the, the, the new buyers are doing due diligence and they say, hey, how does your billing work? Five minutes later, we say, hey, here's a 50-page SOP that lays out everything, who's doing what, exactly what happens. And it's been updated every few months for the past four years. And stuff like that, I feel like is incredibly important. Awesome. So, so having the SOPs, and when you when you talk about SOP, I know that can probably mean a, a different thing to different people. So, standard operating procedure. How how much of this is like? Uh, how how it sounds like you went really in depth, and you to the point where like an SOP I've I've seen can be some people's are more generalized, others are way more in depth, and kind of cover like you know checklists and processes like that. Are you more on the the latter side, like really in depth? It's funny. And I actually don't recommend doing this for people who have never hired a VA before. But I feel like Connor and I have gotten good enough at hiring VAs where we can get the SOP started and then hire really good VAs that get yeah, it. And then roll Let's say it. that I get it to 60%. They can get it to that 100%. And, and I think people that are doing it for the first time might run into issues doing that. But that's what we were able to do. We, we kept all of our SOPs in text um, Google Docs that could be updated. Yep. They didn't start off 50 pages. They started off very small and, and then got better. Um, one of the reasons that we don't use video or didn't use video is because you're changing stuff so much. It just leads to a lot of re-recording and a lot of trying to edit stuff, which is actually why we're launching an SOP software to kind of solve that problem where imagine a, a loom that you're recording, but you can right-click every time you get to the next step. So when you're done, it's logged all the steps. And if you need to replace step three, you can just replace step three without hiring a video editor or redoing the whole thing. Um, and you can add text and give VAs access, remove access, edit access, whatever you want. And, and we, we want to build that to, to really make SOPs a lot more dynamic and easier because that's where I feel like a lot of people struggle either not wanting to make documents or not making good videos or they make the videos and then the videos get outdated and they have to refilm them all. And then they, that just doesn't get done. Yeah, and and I do. I always appreciate the written plus uh, images best on those kind of things. Small preference, but uh, if same 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 deal and kind of struggling or 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 not not really struggling. We're we're doing just fine with it, but find that that's a point of like um, improvement right now and some of the things that we're working on. And it's like, okay, how do we like clean it up, get this done? So you know this this idea of like SOPs and playbooks for specific things, and then expanding out from there. And I love how you kind of. Put the burden or the 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 responsibility on the person who will be executing, as well. I think a lot of people don't think to do that, but I try to do that as quick as possible. Once I have like the rough draft done, it's like the process that I want. I like to hand that off as quickly as possible. Um, I don't know if you have any other comments on that. What I guess besides that, I'd like to maybe zoom in on. Then were there any points where when you were looking at this and getting things prepped and ready, where you were like, oh no, this is we have we have a lot of like resources. Over here, or invested here, and and we need to cut them down and reinvest over here. Anything like that, structurally, that you had to change up um, to to get the business sales ready. Um, we didn't change much from the like from the time. So what ended up happening was our one of our clients actually, the Hawk, um, reached out to us about, and they said, "Hey, we've been using FreeUp for a year. We want to get into the VA freelancer space. We we don't want to build it from scratch. Would you guys be interested in being acquired?" and um, I think from it's not like we we were like oh my god we can sell the business now we just started like changing and optimizing stuff we already had that stuff optimized which is why they they wanted to sell it now I think part of it as we were going through it it ended up being a five six month process was staying focused on growing free up and expanding and the projects that we were working on because the last thing we wanted to do was have it the deal fall through because nothing signed they could back out of the last minute 
And then we haven't been focusing on, on what we should be focusing on growing the business for the past five months. And then we don't really have a great business to go back to. So once we started getting um, the, the outreach from them, the due diligence, the due diligence questions, and we just started doing a lot of due diligence on them too, um, it, it was much more about staying focused and, and continuing the course. I would say that we didn't take on like new projects. We didn't launch anything new, but we had so many projects in the pipeline that we were um, already working on that we just continued to carry on with them. Right. And then for for you guys, and I've I've, I've heard this before, and I've had some conversations about it, um, where people shift in particular to, well, we won't say shift, but maybe like, well, we could say shift or pivot or realign to more of a software-focused enterprise. And and the nature of your your sale in that context is, is different, like kind of how that came about, like kind of organically. And I'm sure that will be the case for a lot of people. But um, you know, I've I have read and talked to some people about how software makes for a better multiple on the sale. I mean, are these things that people should be keeping in mind now, like as they're growing and building, in terms of like things like that? Like, okay, if I if I'm building this and growing it to maybe eventually sell, I I want to keep in mind. Well, what's going to be the most um, lucrative asset that I could sell? And I know some of that was on the systems and processes. On the kind of like relentless marketing that you were doing, and you know, through the networking and partnerships and all that stuff. Uh, but on on that side of things, what, what are your thoughts or advice um, from that perspective? Yeah, I think it's two things. I think it's it's building the systems consistently overall, and and not having anything in your head and making it okay. Every new thing that we try out, everything we do becomes a system that within ninety days I'm delegating to someone else, and I have that process in place, and they take ownership of it. And second, from the marketing side. You need people to be coming to you consistently without you having to necessarily do something. If you're doing all these Facebook lives and you're promoting and, and people are coming and then you stop doing that for three weeks and your traffic your website traffic plummeted, um, that's a, obviously a very bad sign for for someone buying. So I, obviously I can't speak for exactly what what they were looking for, but I mean with Free Up we had all these partners promoting us. We had all these podcasts that are evergreen. We had content that was out there with blog articles and, and SEO, the website was good in SEO, um, and, and micro-influencers just constantly promoting us. And so the, we would get all this traffic very diversified. It wasn't all coming from one specific place consistently to our site. And, and that's something that, that I feel like any buyer is going to look for. If the only way that you're getting leads is by going to conferences and talking to people and you're really good at closing deals, that's tough for someone to come in and, and, and replicate it and, and take to the next level. Right. I love it. And so any other, I guess, words of wisdom or bits of advice on somebody who's like kind of building a business, getting ready to sell and going through the sales process or anything else that you found maybe remarkable about or, or worth remarking on through your process on this idea of like selling a business and then and maybe even kind of transitioning on to like uh, what came next. Um, any final thoughts on that? Yeah. Our biggest thing was we, were, we wanted to sell it to the right people. We didn't care how much money they offered us. I mean, obviously money is a factor, but my point is we did, if someone offered us a lot of money and we didn't feel like they were the right person to take free up to the next level and take care of the relationships and the partnerships that we had built and take care of our internal team and the freelancers on the platform and people that we really care about, we weren't making any deals. So we did a ton of due diligence on them. We got to visit their office, so like an hour and a half from me. Um, they treat people really, very well. They've won Employer of the Year for a bunch of years. They've bought other businesses. They've scaled businesses bigger than us. We learned what their vision was for free up. We really liked it. Um, and we took care of our internal team. Our internal team was it was everything. We couldn't have done it without them. They were billing us thousands of hours every week. So not only did we make sure that their job was secure and, and that the bonuses and raises and the programs that we put into place were, were still going to be there and, and we weren't signing anything without making sure it was, 
we took $500,000 from the sale and gave it to our team in the Philippines to, to make sure they were taken care of as a, as a thank you. And not only that, but when we sold the business, and I, I think at that point, you're kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that they weren't BSing you, right? And have some different plan or whatever it is. We checked in with our internal team and we continue to check in with them. And we actually have a great relationship with the new owners. We're partnered. FreeUp is partnered with my new venture outsource school. And I mean, they've reached out to us for just questions and help and nothing crazy. But I mean, we want to support them. We want them to be successful. We want it to be a win for everyone. And we only wanted to sell the business if it was going to be a win-win-win. And I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough. A lot of people, they, they're either scared to sell their baby or they just want that money, that payout. But there's another factor that, that you want to sell it to the right person. And you also don't want to sell it to someone you can't trust who, yeah, you might have a, these legal agreements, but you don't want someone to like sue you or go in front of an arbitrator or, or yeah. go back on their word. Like You want to sell it to good, honest business people that you will have a relationship with hopefully going forward. And I mean, who knows? Like, assuming everything goes well, maybe I sell them my next business. And that's not the plan, but you never know when you're going to do business with someone again. You don't want to burn some bridge or, or pull a fast one on someone. It's got to be that win 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 for everyone. Yeah. And that does bring up a good point. And it's also kind of this thing like, well, once you sell, then what? And I mean, you were, you, well, you've also had other things going on in the background that I know we haven't really, uh, we didn't really dive into here. But and then, and then you transition to a new business or businesses immediately. I mean, you mentioned the software company, and I know you have outsourced school. Um, but tell me a little bit about that. Maybe also in that transition period, where whether it's about finding the right person to sell it to, but but how, but specifically how you were able to kind of move into this next, um, this next next path for you, like and 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 how where did that come about? Maybe we can dive into that a little bit and how you how do you organize from the sale of this thing that you just invested so much in, right? Time and energy and all that to then going into a new project like right away. Tell me a little bit about what that was like for you. Yeah. So we sign on the dotted line. We, we get them access to everything. There's a 90-day transition period. So we're, we want to set them up to be successful. We're helping them. We're training them. The first two weeks, it's like a normal work week. It's 40, 50 hours a week. After two weeks, they're starting to get it. We, they don't really need us for 40 hours. We're there to help. Um, our hours start slowing down as we get close to the 90 days. And Connor, my business partner, and I, first of all, we have a conversation. Hey, do we want to keep working together? Because who knows? We could have driven each other crazy over the past four years. And we made a, we made money together and, and let's move on. And that would have been fine. But fortunate enough, we um, both enjoyed working with each other and we want to do something together. And then it became, what do we want to do? Do we want to stay in the same space, the VA space? Do we want to go into real estate? Do we want to just take on something different? And people started to reach out to us um, asking us, hey, can you teach us um, how to use VAs better because I had gone on podcasts and written blog articles and stuff like that, but we never went step by step. This is exactly how we did it. And one person in particular, Nate McAllister, who has a lot of experience in the affiliate and course space, um, he said that, hey, like I'd love to work on a next project with you of building out a course on VAs. And so we ended up creating this course. And I think Connor and I, we were not big course people. We, we were a little bit skeptical. We wanted to make it very high value and our whole mentality was, hey, we're going to put everything we can into this course. We're going to spend 60 days making it really good. We're going to sell it. If people like it, great. We'll keep going. If people don't like it, we're just going to refund people. We're not really interested in, in stealing people's money. We want to make a, a good course that, that people actually like. So we launched Cracking the VA Code, which goes in depth into our interview, onboarding, training, and managing process. And I think anytime you start a new business, you have no idea what people's feedback is going to be. Luckily, people really liked it and they wanted more. So we started coming up with these different mini courses of how to hire VAs to go on podcasts called the Podcast Outreach Formula. It's, these are all things that, that I really do that I hire VAs for. 
um, how to hire VAs for lead generation, how to hire VAs for bookkeeping. My first hire at FreeUp was a, an awesome bookkeeper and the process there. So as we're launching these mini courses, we, we kind of, like any business, the idea kind of evolved. So we made it so, hey, you can buy these mini courses if you want. If you just want a course on how to get it, how to use VAs to get on podcasts, go for it. But if you buy our main course, Cracking the VA Code, we're going to give you a year-long membership to outsource school and you get every other course that we come out with the next year and we plan on continuing to, to bring them, to bust them out, um, access to all of those plus support, plus be a part of our community that we're building. And then in addition to that, I'm sure there's lots of things that I know there are a lot of things that I don't know how to use VAs for or hire VAs for. And so we're going to bring in other experts that do to, to teach courses as part of the membership and different workshops there. So that's the idea behind Outsource School and the membership that we're building there. And we'd love to help anyone that, that hasn't been able to, to conquer the ability to hire and, and really use VAs like, like we have. And on the flip side of it, the same developer who built the software, Russell, who was part of the buyout, is working on this SOP building software that I talked about. It's all one business. It's all under Outsource School. Um, but, and we don't have a name for that yet. But that'll be out in the next 30 days. We'll be looking for beta testers. Anyone that wants to be a beta tester, just join our newsletter. We're going to give everyone free access to it. And then the idea there is if people like that software, which hopefully they do, we'll build out a VA toolbox of different VA softwares that complement the education and hopefully cure some of the bottlenecks that, that people have with VA. So that's the plan. We're, we're 90 days in. And just like any business, I'm sure it's going to continue to evolve. At this point in time too, would you say things are about the same level of busyness for you? Uh, same same engagement, same, you know, you just sold a business, you're moving on to the next thing. Are you running a gun in the same amount? Like, I guess like lifestyle wise, what, uh, what's new or different or what's the same? No, my lifestyle is dramatically different. <laughs> I think free up was a lot more 24 seven. I was kind of the, the face of that. I, although I'm, I guess on the face of outsource school, we plan on toning that down a little bit. Um, I mean, I was probably working, I don't know, 10 to 11 hours a day for the past four years, obviously at, like time off and weekends and all that. But I mean, here, my, I'm very much like seven to three. I'm, I'm still working hard. I still have high energy. I've kind of paced it out. I mean, a perfect example of this is last year, there was a week where I did five podcasts a day for five days in a row. So 25 podcasts in a week, which was totally crazy. And that was a terrible week. But now I have it where I don't do more than one podcast a day. And I have a VA who's in charge of that. And I'm booked out until June. And, and just really making sure that, hey, I have that, that work-life balance. Now, the other aspect of that is COVID. I had all these travel plans and now I have thousands of dollars of airline credit. <laughs> so I let some stuff changes. I didn't plan on selling my business and being locked in my house for the next six months. So we'll see right. how that plays out. But my lifestyle is definitely a, a lot calmer, although we continue to, to work hard and build this new company. That's awesome, man. Well, good for you. Good story. Love it. Love seeing people who've earned success, like get it. And, and we appreciate you kind of going behind the scenes and giving us a snapshot of that and a look inside. So you know, again, I'm just going to iterate to everyone. Check out outsourceschool.com. That'll definitely be in the show notes. We'll also link to uh, to free up so people can take a look at that. Um, but check out outsourceschool.com. And then Nathan, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches, man. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, this was fun. Uh, thanks for having me. Anyone listening, I'm very easy to contact. I love networking with other entrepreneurs. Feel free to connect with me on, on Facebook or LinkedIn, Nathan Hirsch, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Real Nate Hirsch. Um, even if I can help you with stuff that has nothing to do with VAs, Happy to do it. Check out FreeUp. I'm now a client of FreeUp. I'm a big believer in them. I love them. I support them however I can. And um, Outdoor School, we're excited about it. And if anyone has questions on that or wants to be part of our community, we'd love to have you. Part of your deal should have been free FreeUp forever. <laughs> we, we negotiated a, a good deal for that. I won't say what it is, but... That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, man. Well, thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tomworkus.com or head over to the website tomworkus.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.